If I asked you, would you go on a vacation to Pittsburgh? You'd look at me funny, right? Yeah. Doesn't the river catch on fire every now and then? No, it does not. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Ministers. I'm Kevin McDonald, here always with Alec Robson. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm uh, I'm doing well. Thank you. It's a new year and uh, some new podcasts are coming out and so we're excited. We're excited here. Yeah, this is a great, great day. Uh, glad that you're here with me. We are back up at Northwest, uh, my home congregation, and we are very excited to introduce Vivek Sundaraj. He was baptized November 1983 in Oxford, Mississippi. Vivek entered into ministry right away, helping wherever he could. He became a deacon in Pittsburgh in 1996. Vivek has been at the Northwest Church of Christ for 21 years. Vivek has served as an elder at Northwest for about five years. Thank you, Mr. Sundaraj, for joining us today on the podcast. We're really excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you very much. This is this is going to be it's going to be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. Well, let's hop right in. How were you brought up? How was I brought up? Growing up in India, in southern India, in the city of Chennai, which was called Madras at that time, um, I was raised in a Christ-oriented home. Um, the church, the Church of South India, is a conglomeration of many different um, trains of thought within theology, and so um, my dad was a church organist. My grandfather was actually um, a minister and, and probably one of the earliest sort of native um, ministers, I guess converted by Scottish missionaries or something like that. But, you know, the, the earliest memories I have are me uh, going off to sleep, you know, during Christmas mass or something like that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's midnight mass, right? So it's very exciting and all that stuff, except when you're three or four, you're asleep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, my growing up, Christianity was a very, very big part of, of our lives. And yet at the same time, we weren't involved in the church in the same way that other people tended to be and I'll explain that a little bit more later on. We were, for sure, we would be there on Sunday mornings. For sure, we would put our offering in. And uh, my dad, because he, had a, he was truly talented in that he was a musician. And he had a, he had a beautiful baritone voice. And he was completely self-taught. And he could play the pipe organ. So he became the choir master and was... He was fully engaged in that. We have pictures of him shaking hands with Prince Philip, who was Queen Elizabeth's husband, wow. who was wow. Queen Elizabeth's husband. So it, was, it really was a big deal. He was, he was an organist in the cathedral in the capital of, of India. Um, and yet at the same time, he did not let that go to his head, which was very interesting. It, you know, it, 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 to him it was, I'm doing this to serve God, not to hype myself up. So my dad had a lot of integrity in that respect. Um, I have an older sister and an older brother. 
and my mom was also uh, very supportive in all of that. You know, she uh, Bible reading and prayer and um, saying grace before meals was a big yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so leaving a lot of that behind later on uh, to become a New Testament Christian was not easy. It was difficult. But at the same time, it was a natural flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I never knew that about your upbringing. I mean, all the years that I've been here at Northwest, I never knew any of these things. And see, so your dad was really big in the congregation there. Big in the sense of he did stuff, but like I said, he was um, he was more of a strong military mind, um, and so. He never played politics. He never really took that whole, you know, I'm an organist. I have a beautiful voice. I can play piano and organ extremely well. Um, it never went to his head, and so he stayed very humble. So in that sense, it wasn't big, but it was because the picture shows that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> well, and that's probably what's helped you through your life is you had that example of no matter what you do, you have to stay you know, on, on earth, on ground, you can't get lost in the clouds. Right. Um, it's a very different meaning to be spiritually humble. It's a very different thing to be physically humble before people because people, you know, when you're around people, you tend to sort of not talk too much and be, keep things down. And then before God, you know, you should be on your knees all the time, absolutely mm-hmm. all the time. And that's a spiritual thing, you know. You should be on your face before the Lord all the time. So, uh, obviously, we don't do that physically, you know, mm-hmm. but spiritually, we do. Sure, yeah. yeah and agree. so those are those are those are things that I guess my upbringing laid the foundation for, you know, because physically, we were very humble. My dad, in spite of all of his talents, in spite of all of the sort of resources that he could bring to the to the table. He chose to downplay, which is very interesting. I still don't know why. Mm. And so he was, he was a humble man. But if you had known him, if you'd put a military uniform on him, you'd have saluted him and said, General, sir. Yeah. Yeah. What did he do for a living? He was a social worker. Okay. So um, funds from the West, typically Germany and Britain, and sometimes the United States also, would need to be distributed. And he was involved in um, making sure that it got to the right people. And where there's corruption, he absolutely would not engage. I I know of a story where a man had come up to him needing favors in this regard, right, to to get um, some of this relief material that he wanted special access to. And in order to shake hands with my dad, he reached out and had a wad of bills in his hand, and my dad just let it drop. That kind of, you know, that, those stories, they stick with you. Yeah, yeah. Seems like your dad was someone you really looked up to. Yes, I did, and I still do. Um, he died in 2005. Um, I really look up to my mother also because she was a very, very gentle, easygoing, um, submissive, but good-natured lady. She's alive still in India. She's 90 years old. Mm. And so um, in that sense, I really, really had a good childhood. My dad traveled as a result of his work. 
because of relief work, you, have to, you, you do travel. And so he wasn't there a lot. And in that sense, maybe it would have been different in my, you know, that, that also shaped me, right? When dad's not there, sometimes it's a little bit less discipline. Whereas my older sister and my older brother got the discipline. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you fall in line as the youngest? I am the youngest, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, in India, is it, um, is, is, is Christianity, was, was it very common at the time, or was it uh, something out of the ordinary, or, because uh, I'm, not, I'm not very familiar with uh, the country at all uh, there, and so was it a uh, kind of a unique thing, situation that you were in, or was it a more commonplace than I'm thinking? To answer that question, um, India has a very large population, mm-hmm. so even though Christianity as a general term, quote-unquote Christianity, which means you could, you could put into that bucket, right? Um, Catholics, um, every, Jehovah's Witnesses, sure, everybody. Sure. You know, yeah. you, you put Abrahamic religions. It's not Judaism, though. Yeah. So it, it's, it's truly, you know, Christ has, has you know, your, 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 your post-Judaism. Um, that group is probably number three after Hinduism, which is huge, mm-hmm. and Islam, which is also big. And then along comes Christianity in, in three major sort of sorts of streams, right? But when you have a country of, at that time, probably, you know, several hundred million, you know, um, even a small percentage, 3% of that is still a lot a of people. Lot and of people. so yep. you would see church sorts of things, you know. And so if the Hindus of... Um, had fireworks at their festivals. Well, what do you think would happen at Christmas? <laughs> yeah. The Christians would do a me too. Yeah. You've got fireworks too yeah. and yeah. spend money and do that. You know? Yeah. And it's um, quite a different thing from New Testament Christianity, which sort of says, oh, we don't do all of that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. What's your, uh, your fondest memory of growing up in India? Fondest memory. I'll give you two. Um, no, I think there's, there really is, ju- no, there are two. <laughs> uh, fondest memory was probably about three or four. I was, I was really, really young. And it's when I, when I connected that Jesus was someone, that, that there was this entity named Jesus. And I, was, I, I know that I was that young because it was, it was five years, when I was five years old, we moved away from North India in New Delhi uh, where Dad worked to move down south to Madras or Chennai, which is which it's called now. So it is well before then. And what typically happens in the Church of North India at that time is about, about Christmas time and Easter time, Good Friday, um, much like we do in small groups, you know, there'd be a group of people that come over and the priest would come over with them and go and visit different families. And because, um, because my fa- we, we lived in a small apartment, what they call a flat at that time, um, so there's a group of probably about 10 or 15 people that came over and we'd sing songs and um, somebody read the Bible and I distinctly remember it's probably about Good Friday time frame when um, uh, I, I understood what they were saying that Jesus was lifted up on the cross and died and it was not right. That was It was unjustified. And I remember, you know, behind my mother's sorry, um, crying about that. So it is a fond memory in that sense because 
I was like, Jesus is someone. He did something really unusual, very cool, and it was not right that we did this to him. So that's one thing. A second thing is um, airplane related. I really and truly am an airplane guy. Um, we lived near an Air Force base, a training base, and so they would have these training airplanes come by. And so a high school friend of mine said he'd come over, and he was somewhat peripherally interested. Um, he was converted many, many, many decades later, um, just incidentally through some Abilene Christian University deal. His name is Sendel. If he hears this, it'd be, be kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd invited him to come over and said, we'll go watch airplanes because we lived so close that the airplanes would literally fly over our house. We were on the final approach. And that morning, for whatever reason, nobody was flying. <sighs> Except one airplane that way early took off. I heard it, because you could, you could tell, right? It's, it was a jet airplane that took off and disappeared. And that was it. I mean, I was expecting, it'd be nice if just one, right, did touch and goes, that'd be great. It disappeared. So maybe they flew somewhere, you know, along on a cross country or something like that. So here's my buddy. He shows up at the railway station. We walk back to the house, and we're walking back. And I've been praying the whole time. Please, Lord, we need some airplanes. Can you just get them up? You know, um, and this particular jet reappears, and so he's flying low. And as we watch, I mean, low level aerobatics is not a thing. You know, I mean, you you really don't do that. So my, my buddy and I are standing there as we're approaching the house. We're, we're, still, we're still on our way. And we have this pretty good view, you know, across some fields. And this airplane simply inverts at low level and then straightens up and pulls up. So wheels up, you know. It, I was in shock. And I was like, the Lord listened to me. <laughs> That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. That's awesome, yeah. <laughs> That is really cool. How old were you when that happened? I was probably ninth or tenth grade, so fifteen. That's really cool. Yeah. So I mean, it's 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 th- these are the things, right? It has a huge impact on me. But somebody else listening might be like, "What's the big deal?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not their story now, is it? Yeah. <laughs> It so, had a huge impact on me. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah. Well, and you work, spoiler alert, right? You still work with airplanes. I don't work with airplanes per se. I never, ever got into it. Okay. Um, I work now, I'm an antenna designer. So, yeah, those parts go on airplanes and other things. So, But every once in a while, um, it's what they call in pilot terminology, they call it the $100 hamburger. Every once in a while, you pay $100, get an airplane, Fly somewhere, get a hamburger, and come back. You know, yep. hundred dollar hamburger. Never heard it. That's cool. <laughs> we used to do that in when I was in the military. We'd have the pilots come into the crew shop and they'd say, "Hey, who wants to go get lunch in Santa Barbara or Twenty Nine Palms?" Right. And we were in San Diego. It's like, well, okay, why not? <laughs> Are you buying? <laughs> so very cool. So, what brought you to the United States? For uh, people in third world countries. America, more so than Britain even, America, is just very, very cool. So for an average Indian guy, um, back in the time frame that I was growing up, going to a Western country for further education was a very normal desire. Um, And so I desired that. My older brother, um, 
Sam Sundaraj, his first name is Ashok, um, he left India to come to the United States. He went to the University of Mississippi before me. And so there was sort of this half expectation that I would go to grad school in America as well. But it was very tricky to get a visa. And so I applied to just the University of Mississippi. And the first time I applied for a visa, they turned it down. But they said I could apply again in six weeks' time or something like that. So I simply went back in six weeks' time, used the same lines, and it's the same guy who probably didn't recognize me. I still have the paper here. Uh, I, I have it on, I might even have a photo on my phone. Anyway, um, he allowed me to enter the United States, and I was shocker of shockers, you know, what they call in India, foreign return. I was, I was headed for the United States to go to grad school. So what brought me to, to America was economic opportunity and education. So that's two key things. I'll paint a slightly different picture for you because I saw this in another young man um, shortly after I arrived here in the States. You know, it, it, he was at Bear Valley at the time that I was there. When you're from a third world country, you watch movies from America and Britain and um, you sort of believe that that's reality. So the sound of music, you know, was, oh, that's, that's how people actually live, you know. Um, or worse, James Bond, that's how people actually live. You, know? <laughs> yeah. you, you walk outside the door and somebody drives up a car and you get in, you drive it and it's yours, you know. Uh, or you walk in after you park your car and uh, there's booze on a little table and you can pour some and you can drink it. You know? That's the impression people get. And also, when you're a man, that the girls would lay themselves down at your feet just like they do for James Bond. You kind of vaguely know that it's not real. And so you're not too surprised when that, when it, when that reality is, that's, that's not the way it is. But in the back of your head, that was there. And I saw it in another guy, which is why I'm repeating it, you know. So uh, that's, the, that's the story of, you know, what brings someone to the United States. It's false expectations mixed with, you know, expectations of certainly a better economy and better opportunity. So what did you study? Um, I studied physics at Ole Miss. My, my education is very convoluted. Um, and so when people ask me, what did I actually study? I say, I went to the school of hard knocks because at every step I was getting banged around. Maybe if dad hadn't traveled so much, a little bit more discipline would have made me a better student, but I was not a good student. So from Ole Miss, right? That's where you were baptized. What caused you into being baptized and putting on Christ? What was the conviction? Okay. Um, my older brother, Sam, uh, came back to India, and we were all in awe because he was one of the bright engineers. He was, he was, he, he's, he's very sharp. And he came back, and we were expecting him to just be a cool engineer, but he came back spouting something about the Church of Christ and how, um, you know, you should be baptized. All this uh, christening stuff is not baptism. You can call it that if you want to, but it's not. And he was very blunt about it. And I play guitar. so And, and I played guitar 
you know, I'd, I'd play Amazing Grace and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and all those carols and all that stuff. And he would say that in the Bible, that's just not allowed. And I called him an eccentric. We thought he was just a nut, you know. Uh, but vaguely somewhere in the background, it was like, really? And he'd become, a, he'd become a Christian at Ole Miss, or at least he was on his way, you know, um, because, and I'll, 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 I'll explain that a little bit more. Um, he became a Christian at Ole Miss, came back spouting uh, Church of Christ, um, Bible-oriented, uh, you know, facts. And I was not going to have anything to do with that. So when I arrived at Ole Miss, um, it was just very normal. And he, he tried hard not to, um, not to brute force my opinions and all of that. He, he, kudos to him for doing that. And instead of being the big brother saying, you should do this. So I moved into the dorm. But across the road, from, this, was a, this was a, you know, it was a uh, high-rise dorm. Uh, so my room was way up there. And I had a Singaporean roommate that I stayed there for, I think, maybe a week. But across the street from that dorm, the Church of Christ had a university Christian student center. And they served meals there four nights a week. The only requirement was that you had to attend a 15-minute devotional before the meal, and you had to take a two-hour class on Thursday nights, for which you could get credit from Harding University. I was in grad school, so I did, you know, but to me, it was like, studying the Bible is a piece of cake. I'll do that. I was out of there, you know. And so I attended Bible studies there, and um, there were several people that influenced me. Um, one of the elders in the church there, one of the deacons, um, some, some other grad students and other folks that just hung around there that attended those Bible studies would talk about the stuff. And then at one point I realized that, ah, you know, I'm a good guy. I've always been a good guy. You know, that's something my mom put into me. You know, I didn't do booze. I didn't do cigarettes. I didn't do drugs. I didn't do... I didn't chase after the girls. Although I'm a red, red-blooded man, you know, I, did, I didn't overdo that. You know. I was a good guy. And I was christened when I was a baby. But as I read the scriptures and I, I studied with these folks, it became pretty evident to me that there was something missing. And so I got on my bicycle one afternoon rode out to the church building, and, and I did that. I didn't have a car. You know, I rode my bike to, ch- to church, unless I rode with, the, with some of the other students. When I got on that bike and headed out, on the sidewalk, I remember thinking, I was going the opposite direction from traffic on the left-hand side. If my bike hit that rock and I got chucked onto the road and that car hit me, I was in a very, very bad shape. And so, uh, you know, I was very intent on going to the... Uh, to the building where there was a baptistry and asking the preacher there to baptize me. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I learned lessons from my brother because the Oxford Church of Christ was such a neat group of people that they could have just told my brother anything, you know, go stand on the corner and then after a while you flip over and stand on your head and then you do a handstand and then you can be a Christian. They could have, <laughs> they could have told him anything and, and he'd just done it because they were just so cool. And I was watchful for that, you know. So he actually became a Christian much later in Pennsylvania when 
he didn't just get wet. He considers at Ole Miss that he just got wet. You know, he, he they could have told him anything and he'd have done it. Baptism, yeah. bring it on. Yeah. As for me, I'm not a water person. So it was like, what? <laughs> a little more skeptical. <laughs> I was I was skeptical to begin with, but then I knew what my brother had been through. So when I said, I want to be baptized, there's no ambiguity there. Yeah. You had you'd read the scriptures and you had you were convicted by them and right. you were, you know, on that bike ride and your mortality was right there in front of you and you're like, yep. man, I, I have better be ready. Yeah. And a lot of people have had the same type of experience where, uh, you know, I remember growing up and, and thinking about, you know, we're driving in the car or whatever. And I remember vividly and the car would be coming and I'd be looking out the window and be like, man, if that person just turned their wheel a little bit and I head on to them and it's all over, I, I, I'm not ready. I better be ready. And so a same type of uh, mentality and then right. seeking that truth. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that the Oxford church was there and with the truth presenting it to you. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great news for sure. Yep. There were other uh, instances also, you know, while I was there because, because church was a big part of me growing up, even as a child, right. Um, I would have gone to church somewhere, you know? Um, and so, Early on, it was the food that got to me. That's right. So. <laughs> yeah, your stomach led you to Christ. <laughs> and then, um, and then, of course, the, the the Bible study opportunities and the church itself. You know, solid Bible teaching and good preaching and uh, encouragement from other Christians was very very helpful. Yep. The and church in Monteagle, Tennessee, was was one that we visited that had a big impact on me. The children's home. Outside of Jackson, Meadowbrook Children's Home had a big impact on me. So all of these things sort of play into, at some point you realize and you say, all of this can't just be an accident. It's pointing me somewhere. And then you see the light in the scriptures, and you're like, okay, this is where I'm headed. Mm -hmm. Now you're seeking the truth. Right. You're not just going along with what the flow of everything is. Right. It's a little bit different in... um, the, the Church of South India, the Church of North India, there's a fair amount of uh, what, what one might call pomp and ceremony. You wear the right clothes. You know, I was in a choir, so I wore a cassock. Um, uh, the priests did certain things. The bishops would carry a crook and all of that stuff. You know, um, Then you come to the Church of Christ, and there's a group of people that are just chit-chatting until worship starts. Nobody's being reverent or quiet or anything like that. It just seemed weird. And so it took a little getting used to. Mm-hmm. But then you realize that scriptures are what matter. And then the Bible really, really sort of hits you between the eyes. You know, so. so the grandeur in worship was something that I had to give up. I kind of like that. Yeah, I kind of like pipe organ music. I kind of like sort of a, 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 what would you call it? More of an order. But so if the churches of Christ don't do that, you know, get over it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not necessarily what you want for worship now, is it? It's more of what we are called to do for God. For sure. So that's what we, we see too much is that people say, well, I don't get anything out of that. It doesn't affect me the same if this doesn't happen. Well, unfortunately, not to step on toes, but it really doesn't matter how you feel about it. The matter that we're, you know, 
worshiping the creator of the universe. That's right. what he wants. And that's certainly true in some things. You know, foundationally, you know, when, when, when the Lord asks you to worship by spirit and truth, yeah, you know, the, the scriptures drive that. But periphery, there are lots of little things that you're like, what is going on here? Why are you doing that? You know, mm-hmm. And after a while, you say, lighten up, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. God ultimately, he he just he wants that relationship, and it's a, a relationship based Christianity. Uh, and he's not one to want you to 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 go through all these motions and your heart not in it. He wants your heart there, and he wants you to have that relationship with him. And he's your he's your heavenly Father, uh, and he wants that relationship with you. And that's 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 what I get out of Scripture. There, it's not. Uh, He's distant and untouchable and unapproachable. It's, uh, but obviously we're humbled by him, and we're uh, we should be spiritually humbled by him because we are <laughs> insignificant uh, in comparison to him. But uh, he still wants to have that relationship with us, and it's very important for sure. The, the relationship aspect of God really is a big thing, but it's not something we get. It takes it really takes time for mm-hmm. that to to sort of sink in. You know, as a child. I've kissed the ring of the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, he's the equivalent of the Pope on the other side, you know. Well, does did that Archbishop of Canterbury have a relationship with me? I mean, sort of yes, right? He cared, you know. If 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 I had at that point, if I'd passed out, he would have done something, you know. I mean, I, I know he cared, um, but here is the Creator of the universe, and he has a relationship with me. That's completely different ballgame mm-hmm. because he's there. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't need anything. He's got all the resources in the world to fix anything he needs, health, wealth, you, sh- you name it. Wow. And he wants a relationship with me? Mm-hmm. That's bigger than the President of the United States. Yep. That's the difference between knowing of somebody and knowing somebody. Right. So back to your story. How did you meet your wife? I met my wife at Bear Valley, at the Bear Valley Church of Christ, her dad was one of the elders there, and she was, um, like I said, I was a young grad student. You know, so I was done with grad school by age 22, um, and I applied for a Mickey Mouse job that uh, was a one-line ad in the Denver Post. In that day and time, that's how you did that. You didn't go online. There was no online. Um, and I arrived at Bear Valley. She was in the teen group at that time, and, you know, you, you noticed them, right? I mean, they sit down, and they smile, and they talk, which is just one of those sweet young girls, you know. It was much later um, that we started dating. Before that, I had connected well with my parents-in-law because we'd go over to their house, Jake and Juanita Gibbs, for, um, for Bible studies with the singles group. And so we were there quite a bit. So we knew about her, that she'd be going off to college, and she did. And it was her sophomore, junior year that we started dating. Long story short, um, by that time, I was living in Pittsburgh, and so we had a long-distance relationship. Think four or $500 phone bills, because at that time, long-distance was not free. <laughs> you didn't so wait till after nine? Yeah, no. <laughs> couldn't wait. We, we waited. Seven on weekends. It, it included all of that stuff. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. you guys know about it. <laughs> this is so before your time, right? You know. But yeah, in, in spite of that, we'd be talking late at night, weekends. In spite of that, you'd get these huge phone bills. But um, we ended up getting married with my father-in-law doing the uh, officiating. 
good-sized wedding. Um, all of our friends were there. Several of our relatives were there. My parents were able to be there. Um, my brother was my best man. So a very normal American wedding, which is very different from an Indian wedding. But even now when I go back and look at our uh, wedding video, in the, old, in the old days that was a VHS video. <laughs> Uh, but it's been somewhat digitized, you know. Um, it, the emotions come flooding back, you know. But, oh, my goodness, was that really me? <laughs> For me? <laughs> and I married to this girl? So, uh, yes. So we met at Bear Valley. Um, not in the sense of, oh, I saw her. And just like in the in the movie, The Showman or whatever it is. Not The, sh- uh, the Big Fish, whatever it is. Um that's the girl I'm going to marry. That did not happen to me. But um, I knew that she served the Lord. I knew that she was aimed at the Lord. And then in college, I'd hear little things about what she did. You know, she was, um, you know, served her congregation different ways. So she was pointed in the same direction as me um, toward the Lord. And so when the opportunity came for us to uh, just connect we did and then there was no stopping us after that so yeah i have a a lot of fun memories of your father-in-law's house as well jake and juanita had us over all the time and i remember on my way to one of their barbecues that's when i was actually baptized how fun yep, and then we celebrated that at their house it was a lot of fun when you were baptized i was there and i remember your dad saying uh I mean, he has a way with words, right? Mm-hmm. Kevin, uh, Don McDonald does. He said, um, you're my son, but now more importantly, you're my brother. Mm-hmm. That was a big statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still remember that day. Yep. I remember him whispering to me to take a good breath, too. <laughs> before he <laughs> held me to hold you down. <laughs> 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 anyway. no, so. J- Jakey and Juanita also had a big impact on me when I was a young Christian because um, he was an elder in the church that I could look up to. And they were, I guess in a, in a way, they were humble, simple, uh, good people. Not perfect, but, you know, certainly someone to to look up to and say, hmm, let me head in that direction. And then the Lord shows you some deviations from that, but you're all pointed in that general direction toward Jesus. So now you're in Pittsburgh. You're married. Did you come back here, move back here to be married, or did you guys live in Pittsburgh? No, I, I actually married Rebecca and dragged her off to Pittsburgh. Not dragged her off. You know, it, it was all a big adventure for us, right? When you're young and you, it, you guys yeah. remember that. Oh, yeah. when you, Exciting. It's, it's at first, you know, you, you're going to move somewhere and you're going to live there. And Pittsburgh is a very different town from Denver. Um, Denver has 300 days of sunshine. Pittsburgh probably has 300 days of overcast. Oh. As a single guy, I just hated that. It just drove me crazy. But once I was married, it was almost like, you know, the light came on. I didn't care. You know, it was fine. With, with Rebecca, I was just perfectly happy there. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, um, I traveled from Pittsburgh back to Denver to get married to Rebecca. And then we honeymooned in Breckenridge. And then after that, we headed back to, De- back to Pittsburgh, where I worked. And that was November time frame. In December, for the very first time, she did not go back to Denver for Christmas. We had our own sort of little holiday, 
And from, from Pittsburgh, it's not too far to go to Washington, D.C. So we went to Washington, D.C., and just a young, newlywed couple just walked around. It was like magic. It was just unbelievable. <laughs> That's Fond awesome. memories. Yeah. Yep. Good times. <laughs> what were you doing for work at the time? Um, similar work. It, it was, what, what I'll, I'll call it electromagnetic simulation software. And I was involved in uh, technical support and training. And then afterwards in product development also. I was not the best at it, but it certainly served a purpose because it's what I do now in many ways. So, and Pittsburgh was where you had your first child, correct? Both children were born in Pittsburgh. Okay. They're both Pittsburghers. <laughs> <laughs> um, we won't hold it against them. Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> so that's, that's a funny thing. Pittsburgh is seen as this industrial town, and, you know, why would you even do that? But it has massive, massive benefits. You know, it's just a wonderful place. Um, if I asked you, would you go on a vacation to Pittsburgh? You'd look at me funny, right? Yeah. Doesn't the river catch on fire every now and then? No, it does not. <laughs> <Go away. laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> there are three rivers, and of course, they've done a lot of cleanup, right? Maybe it did in the old days. Yeah, in the 1800s, there's I don't know. stories. But <laughs> we won't there's get there's other stories of pollution and yes, stuff yeah. like that, too. <laughs> but if you asked me to go back to Pittsburgh, I'd go back there like a shot. Wow. Did you have a good uh, a church home there as well? Church was a very different thing because the first church that I attended, uh, pretty much in downtown Pittsburgh, I shouldn't say downtown, not quite downtown, but in, in, the, in urban Pittsburgh, uh, the Fifth and Beachwood congregation at that time did not have a Sunday night service. And as a young Christian, that just hit me like a whack on the head. I was like, What? <laughs> what, what do you but mean? you should. This is what we do, you know. <laughs> and so I was at a loss on Sunday nights. Eventually, I moved away from there to sub, to suburban Pittsburgh, and then um, we ended up at the Crossroads Church of Christ in, Mc, in McMurray, PA. And one of the elders there, same same basic thing, connected with me. And so, um, as a young Christian, I appreciated that. And then Rebecca and I were um, were good friends with Gary and Brenda Dadisman and also with one of the other elders there, Roy and Billy Nance. So, yep. So both your children were born in Pittsburgh. Right. Um, when did you move back to Denver and why? We moved back in 2000 um, because we saw that Jeremy was about four years old at that time. You know, he was, just, uh, he was born in 95 and he's approaching five years of age. And periodically we'd look at moving back to Denver because we saw that Jeremy and Jakey were connecting really, really well. They, you know, it was just an unusual bond uh, for a young child and, and his granddad. You know. And periodically I'd apply, but nothing ever really worked out. And it got to be a little frustrating. You know. And then there was one time, by, this, by that time the internet was a thing. So I looked online and there was a job with a telephone number. So I actually called the telephone number. And uh, this l- much larger company than I was working for at that time was really, really interested at a much higher level. So when I said, um, I'm an RF engineer, all that guy realized was that I said RF. And so within six weeks, I'd interviewed, accepted the job. They put everything in the back of a, of a semi from the truck house that we were renting, including the, the old white Honda. And boom, we were here. Wow. You know? But we were here up at the north end of town. 
which might as well have been Minneapolis. It was, I mean, we were so unfamiliar. We didn't know where the grocery store was, and I didn't know, didn't know anything, you know. Um, because, of course, we knew the south end of town quite well, you know, Denver. But Westminster was just a... Yeah, we knew about the Northwest Church of Christ because Rebecca was an SYD when she was a kid. So we knew, you know, that the building existed and stuff like that. But to live here was a completely different ballgame. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Mm-hmm. so you came back here? Came back in 2000, yep. um, basically accepting another job, but was driven by the fact that we liked the mountains and that we wanted... Um, to connect our children with our relatives who are all out west. My brother Sam lives in Kansas City, outside of Kansas City, in the general vicinity there. Um, and I, I'm not sure if my sister had moved to the States quite then yet, but they ended up in Kansas also. And, of course, Tim Gibbs lives in Fort Morgan, which is not far away. We wanted we wanted those connections. Some of them happened, some of them didn't, but um, we do love the mountains. So, and did you come to the Northwest Church of Christ right away? The yes, the house that we ended up buying um, was closer to this building than to anything else. But we'd already visited the Northwest Church of Christ and saw and seen just talking to people uh, and seeing Highland Christian School here that that would be a good thing for our kids. Um, we just decided that you know all of those lines were converging on the Northwest Church of Christ. And mm-hmm. so after just briefly visiting a few congregations, we settled, within a month, we decided on uh, the congregation first. And then as we looked at the houses, this particular house that we that we still live in um, is, you know, just a few miles from the building. So it worked out good. And I, I probably should ask this question earlier, but where did you first start serving as a deacon? Sure. Um, it was in Pittsburgh, shortly after Jeremy was born, that um, the elders asked me to be a deacon. And it was a smaller congregation, probably about 100 people. And so I was suddenly tasked with being a deacon over three different areas. One of them was benevolence. One of them was, um, I forget. One of them was benevolence for sure, you know, um, education and something else. Um, and I did the very best that I could. I mean, I had no clue, mm-hmm. right? You know, but when the Lord calls you and says, hey, you know, the elders are asking you to be a deacon, like I said before, the easy thing to say is no. But you say yes, and then the Lord says, well, I'll empower you. It may not be perfect, but you can handle it. So, And I was a deacon there for pretty much the whole time that we were there, you know, um, so about, what, about four years or so, you know. Um, and then after I came here to Northwest, um, I served as a deacon again. And then when the split happened, the elders needed someone to coordinate worship. And so I coordinated worship as a deacon and then ended up becoming um, the deacon serving the youth. And I did that for a while. And then there was a need to serve the older folks. What What... Here at Northwest, what we call the teenagers, <laughs> and so um, that was that was a great experience. Also, um, one of the one of the things about serving as a deacon, big picture, not necessarily in a in a quote unquote deacon quote unquote capacity, right? Um, one of the things that my family did, which was significant, was whoever was in charge of handling 
getting the, the, Lord's, uh, the Lord's Supper over to people that were shut in or otherwise in nursing homes or whatever, um, asked us to do that. And so with our young children, they were, they were really young at that time. They were probably, you know, Lydia was probably three, Jeremy was a little bit older. Um, we would go and do that. And connecting with the older people made a huge difference for me, and I think it did for my family as well. So what convicted you to step up into eldership here at Northwest? Because that's a big step from deacon to elder. It's enormous. Um, being an elder is, the, is absolutely the most difficult thing I've ever done. Um, but Ron Hannigan spoke to me and said, would you consider being an elder? It was simply an invitation. That's really all. And so when it came time, um, Rick Kramer and I became elders here. There wasn't a huge conviction, Alec or Kevin. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, was I qualified? Yes. Um, did I want to be qualified? Yes. But I wasn't, didn't want to be qualified in order to be an elder. I simply wanted to be qualified because those qualifications were fundamentally good things. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was sort of a natural progression. Um, the opportunity was there um, and had been there for a while. Um, but I never went after it. And then when Ron Hannigan said, would you consider? I said, okay. And then Rick Kramer and I became elders. Um, Rick Kramer has moved to Indiana now. So, But the Lord has chosen to keep me here. And so in that step, the conviction, you said, obviously because that's a, a big ask, right? Even though you have elders that bring you in. What do you think if you can nail it down? Like, what was the? I mean, the opportunity was there, but was there something inside you that wanted to take that? You said it's the most difficult thing you've done, but you've been doing it for five years, so there's a reason you're still doing it, right? Yeah, um, you've been in the military. When your commanding officer asks you to go and do something, you simply do it, you know. And what if your commanding officer does doesn't know that you can do it? You still do it. Uh, in this case. My commanding officer, the Lord, said, go do this. And I said, oh, okay. Um, I don't know what it means. I, I really have no clue. Um, and he said, you know, I will give you what you need. And that's, that's true of all of us, regardless of where we're at. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager. The Lord will give you what you need. You just pay attention to when he calls you. He called Samuel and gave, him what, gave Samuel what he needed. The Lord does that to this day. On that note, uh, you know, this grow where you're planted, this idea of you've been given the talents, uh, you've, you've grown in this, it's, 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 you've, you're coming from a long way, from all the way from India to here, and the growth that you've had, the family connections you've had, the, 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 the body connections with the church there, uh, it's just well, one thing after another to where you get to the point to where someone asks you to, to be an elder, and you're like, well, I'm already qualified, I'm already ready, I'm already here, and it's just the next logical progression for you. But on that same note, kind of on our 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 mission statement, so to speak, uh, out of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul is charging Timothy, a young man, to find these men that are able to teach others also and to continue this uh, body of Christ uh, uh, until today, to where we're sitting here, 
several thousand years later, uh, several thousand miles away from where uh, Paul was charging Timothy this, and we're still doing this same pattern. Yep. What what advice would you give us, uh, Kevin and I, as uh, uh, fathers with young children, or also any other individual out there listening? What 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 would you encourage them? How would you say would be the steps that you need to take to to move into this position to where you're you're finding those people that are able to teach others also and to continue to serve the Lord in the capacity that you have? Uh, is there any advice that you have for us, or if there's any advice for other people out there as well uh, that you have uh, to give us? So the the thing that I get from my experience, right, is serve outside the logical thing that you would do. You know, I mean, at this stage, what I would do is serve people that are my kids' age, young professionals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, you want to think outside that box. Uh, serve whomever. If there is a young family, serve that young family. If there's an older lady, serve that older lady. It's just whatever. When, when the Lord calls us to be a servant, um, he really isn't, he isn't looking to say, it's your talent. I'm going to use your talent. It's not about my skill or my knowledge, all of which I have none of. I mean, I'm not talented. I'm not skilled. <laughs> I'm not even a pilot for all this big talk, you know. Um, it's just that the Lord says, go do this. And then he leads you day by day. And so I'll, I'll separate that from, uh, you know, so to, to, to answer your first question, Right, which was, um, what advice would you give? The advice is, serve in any capacity. If you ask, if the Lord asks you to change the oil, do the best you can. Hopefully, without killing yourself. <laughs> um, Don't light the river on fire. <laughs> that sort of thing, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, you 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 do what He calls you to do, and He will protect you. He He knows what He's doing. The the call will be very clear. It'll be unusual. It's it's like it's like Samuel. It wa- it's not normal when the when the Lord calls you, you will know. You know, um, the the other aspect of being an elder is um, passing this on to the next generation, or even to other people. Uh, passing it on to the next generation is vital. Um, if the if if the children of people who really believe in New Testament Christianity do not become New Testament Christians themselves, New, New Testament Christianity will end. Um, yet at the same time, there is no guarantee that all of the children of all of the New Testament, New Testament Christians are going to be New Testament Christians. Or is there? There is a scripture which says that the Lord offers salvation to all generations in Isaiah. And so I hang my head on that um, so I will teach my children. And it won't matter if I'm 80 years old. I'm going to be beating on them the whole time. They know that. I've, mm-hmm. I've spoken mm-hmm. to them about that. In a sense. Um, we do want to teach our children. At the same time, you want to teach other people too. And that has been a weird, weird experience for me. I cannot... I, I, you know, there have been so many, so many occasions when we've offered to teach people the Bible. And the Lord simply says... I don't want you to. Hmm. And you would ask, how did he do that? They moved away. We schedule a time 
And within that week, they leave and move away. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> you know? Yep. And it's stuff like that. Yeah. And, and other scenarios where they, where, they, where they just walk away. Is it me? Is it the Lord? I don't know. And, and, and so basically you're saying it's like, you're, you're not responsible for everybody. <laughs> and, and you have to have that mindset as you're going in is, I'm just teaching what I know to who I know when I have the opportunity. That's exactly right. And if I don't have the opportunity, then maybe it's somebody else that's going to reach out to him. But at least I'm planting those seeds wherever I can, because hopefully uh, God will provide that increase maybe somewhere down the line. That's correct. Um, so it's crucial for me to teach my children well. Mm-hmm. It's a song. Um, it's also crucial for me to be willing to teach anyone else at any other time. So when I teach the teens, I tell them, if somebody asks you, what must I do to be a Christian? You can literally tell them in five minutes mm-hmm. with authority. You know, the whole believe, repent, confess, uh, be baptized, all of that stuff. I've spoken it in 10 seconds, you know. If I added the scriptures to that, there's like three scriptures. Acts 2.38 gets two in one, yeah. one, one, <laughs> one two birds with one stone, you know. <laughs> yep. Stuff like that. John 3.16, you, you already memorized. Yeah. You know? Put that together and you can tell people immediately. And so evangelism is something we should be deliberate about. I watch for these opportunities. And, man, surprisingly, they fizzle out. So I don't know what the Lord is doing because I'm absolutely willing. But when he leads me to the people that want to listen, I'll be happy to share. And it'll be his message. I'm not going to put me into that picture at yeah, all. Correct. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think you get that from your, your father, right? That's what you were talking about earlier, how he remained humble. Yeah. And the fact that even though you had maybe a little bit different of an upbringing as far as Christianity goes, you, f- you found a way to seek the truth. Correct. And you have not stopped doing that. That's right. I'm still not, uh, what are the popular words now, deliberate and intentional about seeking the truth. Yes, I seek the truth, but there's a light ahead of me. I can't see very well, but I'm headed toward the light because I absolutely do not want to go toward the darkness. Mm-hmm. Do you have any closing thoughts? Closing thoughts? Um Simple things. Pray, trust, obey, and wait. Focus on the fruit of the Spirit, especially kindness and gentleness, which is hard to do. And that's it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, we we really appreciate it. Thank you. uh, Taking time out of your day and telling us your story. It's been fascinating. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed listening to your story. It's a pleasure. And I hope this blesses you and other people. Thank you.